Turn with me then, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 8. I took uh, from this passage that the revival a couple of weeks ago, we want to speak to you today about thinking or setting your mind on godly things. And I guess that would be our title, Setting Your Mind on Godly Things. I want to back up and read verse 31, and then our thoughts are going to come um, from 33 and, and onward. We'll just read to the conclusion of this chapter today. Verse 31, it reads, And he, being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And if I could pause for just a moment, that's the gospel in one sentence. That's the whole gospel of Jesus Christ summarized in one sentence that he would come and he would suffer and he would be rejected and he would die and he would rise again. That is the gospel that we believe. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Christ, the Lord has, as I said in verse 31, given us a picture of the entire gospel in one verse, that he would come and he would suffer, and he would be betrayed as he was and rejected by the very people that he came to save, the very people through which he was promised to come. He would be rejected by them, and he would die, and he would rise again. And he said it plainly. There was no confusion about the gospel, according to Jesus. He told us with great clarity what this was going to be about. And he's... and I. And wanted to just mention before I begin in earnest today that I pray that we understand that gospel, that what Jesus truly did. And I think you could spend your life studying and thinking and pondering and diving deeper and deeper into the wonderful thing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is, that he died for us and he had to die because of our sin. Because none of us could be the the sacrifice for sin that the law called for. And 
And Jesus came and submitted himself to the cross so that we might have an opportunity to be saved. And we certainly do not want to overlook that. That is the reason that we have hope in the world is because of what Jesus did on the cross. We don't have hope because we have confidence in man. We don't have hope because we have confidence in our government. We don't have hope because we have confidence in ourselves. We have hope because we have confidence in Christ, because of what he did when he paid the price for sin on Calvary. And so he remind, he teaches them and he tells them this. He, he began to teach them, it says. He began to prepare them for what was coming their way, because what was coming their way could not have been farther from their minds. This was not the way these men and these women, these followers of Christ, were expecting things to transpire as they followed Jesus. This is not what they were expecting. And any of you, I would ask you today, if you've been trying to follow the Lord for any time in your life, I bet it hasn't looked like you expected it to look. But here, uh, Peter, once he hears this from Jesus, and it says very purposely that Jesus spoke plainly, Peter rebukes the Lord. And that's where we want to truly begin today. Jesus has stated the gospel. Once he does that, we often find that even today when the gospel is proclaimed, men respond in a negative way. They don't accept it right away. It sounds very foreign to their ears. It's one reason that I've said in the past, and others have said as well, that we would never write the gospel the way that it's been written. Man wouldn't write this Bible. He wouldn't author it the way it's been authored. He wouldn't provide for his salvation the way God has provided for his salvation. A man would make much of himself and us and how good we can be. When the Bible and the gospel message makes much of how Christ is good, and only Christ is good. But Jesus has proclaimed the gospel, and man responds negatively to it, and so do so too do his followers, his very followers, the ones who claimed to know who he was. Even his followers respond negatively to Jesus. So I want you to understand, first of all, as we begin today, to make no mistake about it, the gospel is a scandalous story. It's scandalous. It's not pretty. It's not pristine. It's not comfortable. It's not something that settles in our heart in a light way. This is a story of the righteous Son of God who did nothing wrong, did nothing but love the world by coming in the first place and through all of his actions, his miracles, his compassion, his teaching, his certainly his suffering and dying on the cross, everything that he did, the gospel is the story of this righteous Son of God did nothing but love the world who was betrayed and brutally murdered on a cross at Calvary. That's the gospel. It's not pretty. It doesn't make us look good. It doesn't make us look righteous. It doesn't make us look holy. It makes us look just like we are, needy, sinful, in need of a Redeemer. 
And man here, including his disciples, they respond negatively. But the gospel of Christ, again, this is a scandalous story. The gospel of Christ is far removed, I think, from much of the sanitized Christianity that we run into a lot in our life here today. The cleaned up version, the nice version, the pretty version, the comfortable version that's out there. The gospel is the story, according to Christ himself, of the few here in this world against the many, against the weak here, against the powerful here. The gospel is the story of the narrow gate and the narrow way. This is the gospel. It's not something that is packaged up so much of the time that we hear today, though. It's something else that's packaged and made to look pretty and made to look nice. The gospel, sometimes even as told by the unbelieving world, though, is a story about how some people have been deceived by a man who was a criminal and handed over to the government of Rome and crucified there as a criminal. But for those of us who believe and know, we see the gospel as our only hope. I can do nothing to merit heaven. Were I to give my body, according to Paul, and to be burned, and to die a martyr's death on some foreign land, if I were to do all of that, I would still never be righteous enough to merit heaven. I would not be able to stand before Jesus Christ on the day that I leave this world. And that great day that is coming, someday out there where we're told in Acts, there is a day that is set, that stake that is in the ground, that the Father knows, and we're all marching toward it. That day, no matter how good I tried to live my life, there's not a single thing that I could claim to Christ and say, I merit heaven because I did this. It's only going to be because of Christ. His righteousness, His blood that was shed on the cross, so that through Him I might be saved. And as Acts also tells us, there is no other name written under heaven whereby we must be saved, but Jesus Christ the Lord. And therein lies the rub for us today in a society and in a culture where we are more and more encouraged to tolerate and accept all kinds of things. The world today will accept your Christianity if your Christianity is this. Jesus is a Savior. Jesus isn't a Savior. He is the Savior. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of God. But this, Christian, this gospel that is told, uh, that this is a scandalous story. It's not pretty in the eyes of the world. But for those of us who believe, as we sing that old rugged cross, the world sees it very differently than we do. So this gospel is spoken by Jesus in a succinct and clear way. And many respond negatively. And we understand an unbelieving world that would respond in this way. But I, I want to pull out and, and, and have you consider today the fact that even his followers responded in a negative way when Jesus proclaimed the gospel to them. Even Peter Verse 32 tells us that Peter began to rebuke the Lord. He took him aside and he began to rebuke the Lord. And that word rebuke in the Greek, it means to express a strong disapproval of someone, to denounce. In case that's not sinking in, I want you to consider for just a moment the audacity of Peter 
The one again who is often given more of a hard time than he ought to be or deserved to be. But here we look at this. If that's not sinking in, we have Peter, a sinful man, has the misplaced confidence to rebuke the very Son of God. He begins to rebuke him. Now, no doubt in Peter's defense in somewhat, when he knew Jesus was the Messiah who was to come, in fact, in verse 29 before this, just in this very same chapter in Mark, we, he admits that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 29, Jesus asked them, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. So Peter believed that he was the Messiah. And then Jesus began to teach them what the gospel was and what he was going to have to do. Peter, believing him to be the Messiah, pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. Begins to say, not so. Peter's understanding, though he believed him to be the Messiah, we understand then that Peter's understanding about the Messiah was all wrong. What Jesus was coming to do, we know this, you know this very well. The Jews at that time believed, and still today believe, that the Messiah will come in this way. The Jews believed Jesus was going to lead a rebellion against Rome and reestablish the nation of Israel on the earth at that time in that place and be an independent and powerful nation once again but here Jesus was teaching them in a single sentence and with great clarity that he was going to suffer he's going to be rejected he's going to be put to death and this was just as far from their idea about who the Messiah was as it could be and Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him this doesn't line up with what Peter thought he knew about what the Messiah was going to do. And so he begins to rebuke the Messiah. And I want to take just a very, I hope, targeted side path on this thought. You might say I would never do such a thing as to rebuke the Messiah. I would never have that kind of confidence to rebuke him. You might say, I'd never had that kind of boldness. But I suspect many of us, many of us, the same kind of thing has happened. We, when Christ calls us to follow him, and we have in our minds an idea of what that's supposed to look like, what our lives will look like as followers of Christ, and then they don't begin to look like that. And sometimes we can be guilty of rebuking the Lord, if not in word and thought. Because it doesn't look the way we anticipated it to look like. We sometimes in much of the world, sometimes I think this is true. But sometimes even as followers of Christ, we want to have Christ without his cross. And we want to be Christian without ours. But we can't. It's not the gospel. It's not what we've been taught. We want ease and comfort, it seems. I know that my flesh does, wants ease and comfort and security in this world and Christ at the same time. But it's not really possible unless Christ is our security both here and in eternity. It's not possible to be at peace with this world 
And, I, and by that I mean that we are at rest here and that we're comfortable here and that things don't bother us here and that sin doesn't afflict us here and that burden doesn't attend us here. We, we want to be at peace with the world. We want to, we want to be able to just go along and, and get along. And, and sometimes in our own nation's history, that's been more and more possible to do as our nation typically and traditionally was more Christian in its worldview and in its mindset. But that is shifting. And I might even say it has shifted. And, and we can't go along with the world the, the way the world is going and be Christian at the same time and be at peace with God and peace with the world at the same time. And if you don't believe me, then please believe Jesus himself. In the 16th chapter of John, the verse 33, those very well-known words of Christ, I've said these things to you, and he'd been comforting them and telling them about the spirit that was to come and telling them about how they were to be uh, uh, comforted in a difficult time. And he says to them, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus says, and he speaks the gospel, and he speaks it succinctly and simply and clearly, and Peter is taken aback by it. He is offended by it. He pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Not so, Lord, this can't possibly be true. You're the Messiah. You're the one that's going to restore Israel to its former glory. And he was right, and he was wrong. He's right, ultimately, wrong in his timing. And by the way, right in his, in his messianic view in eternity, but wrong in what it was going to take for anyone to be righteous. If Christ didn't die, none of us would have any hope. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God himself, the proto-evangelica, as they say, in verse 15 of chapter 3 in Genesis, where God himself claims and says there's going to be one who's going to come from the seed of the woman that is going to bruise Satan's head and conquer him, but he's going to suffer. He is going to be the sacrifice. And from that point on, all the prophets said the same. But Peter missed it, and so did most of the Jews of that day. But he's rebuking him. Now, what was Jesus' response to Peter? Verse 33 tells us, Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that's what I want to truly encourage you with today, is to set your mind on the things of God and not man. This was a strong rebuke from the Lord. He says to get behind me, Satan. Calls him Satan. Tells Peter to get behind him. It's similar maybe the way we would talk, Jesus telling Peter, get out of my way. You're in my way. You're between me and my objective. You are preventing me from going where I intend to go. Get out of my way. Get behind me, Satan. I can... And can you too, can, I can imagine Peter's heart in that moment as it was struck by these words. Almost, I think, perhaps like a physical blow. Get behind me, Satan. 
Because in Peter's mind, he's sincere. He's, uh, he doesn't understand. He says, this can't possibly be true. And he begins to rebuke uh, the Lord. But you notice that Peter took him aside to do this. He at least had the, the awareness to not do that publicly and openly in front of the other disciples. But Jesus waits and turns and looks at everyone and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why is such a strong rebu- rebuke? Why such words that no doubt struck Peter deeply why was this such a situation where the Lord felt it necessary to rebuke Peter so strongly I I think we might answer it this way because Peter was presenting to Christ essentially a similar temptation that Satan himself had prior to this in Matthew chapter 4 when we read of the Lord's uh, temptation in the wilderness Verse 8 through 10 says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, that is Jesus, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Does that sound similar? Be gone, Satan. Get out of my way, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This was an attempt in some ways by Peter, though he was perhaps unaware and it wasn't fully in knowledge that he was doing so. It was an attempt to divert Christ from the cross, which was his mission in the world and his, his point and the target of obedience to his father. And Peter is trying to divert him from that course. The cross of Jesus Christ is the focal point of all of Christianity. And because it's the focal point of all of Christianity, and Christianity is to be the religion, the followers of Christ, it is the focal point of all of human history. The cross of Christ. That day that if we were to have witnessed that day, we would be shocked, we would be horrified, we would be sick to the stomach, to watch such brutality as was on display on that day, the cross of Christ. This is the focal point of Christianity. It's not pleasant. It's not easy. It's not simple. It's not something that we stumble into. This is the focal point of Christianity. And this Christ knew And he knows today it is the focal point and to have anyone divert attention from the cross of Christ is something that Jesus responds to in the great with great abhorrence and rebuke and he rebukes it and he says to get behind me but the cross is the focal point of Christianity why do you think the enemy wants us to forget about it Why do you think he wants us to think about Christianity as something other than this? That it's about happy lives and easy lives and prosperity and wonderful relationships and wonderful marriages and wonderful homes and all the finances we could ever need. Why do you think the enemy wants to remove the cross from our focus? Because that's the focus of everything. Why do you think the world's okay with a Christianity that surrenders the cross, that gives it up? that wants to, doesn't, wants to smooth that over. Why do you think people will tolerate a Christianity that removes Christ's suffering and dying on the cross for the sins of the whole world? They want to remove it because it is the gospel. 
It is the focal point of the gospel message. We, we, I anyway, I had to ask myself this question. How did, how did Peter make such a mistake? Why would he do what he did? Of course we know he misunderstood. We know that that, by the way, lack of clarity in his own mind is going to follow him all the way through to the end. He's going to be standing in an empty tomb, confused, but then he's going to get it. But why did he... Jesus answers this question. How could he think this way about Christianity? And, and how can you and I, how can the world, how can anyone think about Christianity apart from the cross? How can we think about following Christ and being a Christian removed from the brutality of the suffering Savior on the cross. How can we make such a mistake in thinking about our Christianity? And the answer Jesus gives us is because we're not setting our minds on the things of God, we're setting our minds on the things of man. That's when we are always destined to go wrong. In verse 33, when he had turned about, Jesus did, and he looked on his disciples. He rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest, is what the King James Version says, thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. In the ESV, you have not set your mind on the things of God, you've set them on the things of man. We understand this statement, I think, on the surface. I need to think about the things of God. If I'm going to think rightly about my life, about Christ, about the cross, about Christianity, about right and wrong, about truth and error, about good and evil, if I'm going to think rightly about these things, I'm going to have to set my mind on the things of God and not man. We understand that in a way, but I think this statement goes far deeper than we often see. Sometimes we even think we understand this statement rightly when we really don't. We think what we approve, God approves. We think what we think, God thinks. We think if God is silent, then he must not have anything to say. But God tells us otherwise in his word. In Psalm 50 verse 21 the Lord, God himself speaking, these things you have done, this sin that he had just set out, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, this well-known verse, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, my thoughts than your thoughts. And so when we hear Jesus himself say to us, you are setting, or say to Peter, and by extension, you and me, when he says, you're setting your mind on the things of man and not of God, we need to understand that he's not saying that thinking like we do, but thinking like God does. And so we have to go deeper than just what's on the surface here. Yes, I need to go to church on Sunday. I need to tithe. I need to read my Bible. I need to do these things. Of course you do. But it goes deeper than that to the core of who you are and what you know to be true. And what you're convinced about, 
And to do that rightly, you're going to have to set your minds on the things of God. Now, some might think that these passages that I just read are to be understood by saying, well, I guess we can't know God. I guess we can't know His will. He's so far different from us. Then why try? Throw your hands up and just give up. No. Why do you think He wrote us 66 books? Why do you think He sent His Spirit? Why do you think He told us to gather in congregations and local congregations of believers to encourage and exhort one another? It's because why do you think He wrote Romans 12 too? Transform yourselves by the renewing of your mind to think differently from the world. So this is not what Jesus is saying. This is not what those passages are saying. Some will take from these passages an excuse to forgo the ongoing work of personal sanctification and claim that we could never think like God, so we shouldn't even try, but we know that's not true. Some have taken this idea so far as to say that in order to follow God, one must disconnect himself, disconnect his mind or even his heart, and and just have some kind of -of out-of-body experience or something, and that's not part of the equation either. It's to miss the point of what Jesus is saying here, I believe. The issue isn't that we can't know, that we can't set our mind on the things of God. It's that in order to do so, we must think more like God and less like man. Fallen, sinful man. Now, how do we do that? Well, Jesus didn't... Jesus instructs us here and gives us ways to think about this. Jesus didn't just say, did he, to take your mind off the world. He didn't say, Peter, you said this to me because you've set your mind on the things of man. Take, Take your mind off the things of man. That's not what he said. Sometimes I think that's how we view the Christian life. Just, just try not to be bad. Just try not to sin. Don't drink too much. Don't curse. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Just try not to be bad. And we do that, and we miss what Jesus, I think, is trying to teach us here. We're not just, we ought not to just try to avoid sin. If you've got some sin in your life that continues to vex you, continues to settle over you, and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried to get rid of it and you've tried to stop and you've tried to remove it, I would ask you to think with me and with Christ. It's not just about removing and not thinking and setting your mind on the things of man. It is about setting them on the things of God. It's not just to try to not sin and to remove the sin from your life. It's about what you replace it with. Our hearts and our minds, and we've said this a number of times before, but they are a vacuum. Something's in there. Something is in your heart right now. I don't know what it is. Something's in your mind right now. Thoughts are there. I don't know what they are. God does. And his word is a discerner of those things. But our hearts will be feeling something always. Anger, fear, joy, peace, love, excitement, apathy, on and on. They're going to be feeling something. And sometimes it's an amalgamation of all kinds of different feelings all at the same time. 
They're going to be feeling something. Our minds, yours and mine, they're going to be thinking something all the time. It's kind of like when I was a boy, like many boys, I was fascinated with sharks. And I remember one of the things I learned that I later learned wasn't true about all sharks, but about some of them, and of course my favorite, the great white, that thing has to swim constantly in order to stay alive. It can never stop, can't breathe. It's like our minds. There's something in them flowing all the time. Our minds are going to be filled with something. Our hearts are going to be filled with something. And Jesus tells us, take out of there the things of man and put in there the things of God. The reason you have so much trouble with the things of man, the sin of this life, yours, mine, the world, is because we don't just simply try to remove it. Then there's just this vacuum in our heart that sucks something immediately back in. So surround yourself with God's word and, and pour it into your heart and your mind and with prayer, with the spirit of God and with fellowship with others around you to encourage you because your mind is going to be filled with something. And this, by the way, is the failure. And I know this will be offensive to a certain group. This is the failure of the Buddhist thought. To empty yourself. To reach nirvana, in their view, is to empty yourself of all desire and thus freed from desire, in their view, you'll never experience disappointment. It's, a, it's an attractive thought. Empty yourself. But that's not Christianity by a long shot. This is not what Christ tells us to do. We are told to fill our minds with the things of God. We are told to be filled with the righteousness of God. We are to desire godly things in our life. We're not to empty ourselves of all desire. We're to desire the right things. We are to think godly thoughts and to feel godly feelings. And in order to do that, to avoid Peter's mistake, we're going to have to set our minds on things, on the things of God. All day, striving to set our minds on the things of God, not on the things of God of man. Man, we can differentiate them. Man, what are our thoughts? Our thoughts almost always are completely consumed with time this side of eternity. This temporary life. This brief limited life. Those are the thoughts and the things of man. God setting your mind on things of God, that's eternity. That's understanding that yes, there's going to be a point out here in the future when I am going to be separated from this life to eternity. I'm going to set my mind on eternal things, and that doesn't mean that I dismiss things in this world. It means I see them in light of eternity. I see them in that view. The things of man, thoughts on the things of man, it's all about ourselves and others, perhaps, even other men. Thoughts upon God, setting our minds upon him, or thoughts about him. Man's thoughts, riches on earth. God's thoughts, riches in heaven. Man's thoughts, what makes us feel good and look good. God's thoughts, what pleases God and exalts his son. Man's thoughts, avoid trials at all costs. Forsake even your core beliefs if necessary because you've got to avoid those trials. God's thoughts, count those trials joy. You see how markedly different it is. 
to set your mind on the things of God as opposed to the things of man. And so I ask you three questions. I ask myself the same questions. What was your mind set on yesterday? What's it set on today? What will it be set on tomorrow? Things of God or the things of man? What does it ultimately mean? And we'll come toward a conclusion. Verse 34, what does it mean to set your mind on the things of God? What does that look like? How does one do it? Well, again, the Lord anticipates and answers the question. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Set your mind on the things of God. As Jesus now calls the crowd, that by extension now includes you and me because he inspired Mark to write it down for us on this occasion in the words of Christ. Jesus calls us, calls you, calls the crowd to himself and teaches them what it means to set your mind on the things of God. And first of all, this instruction that he gives is for anyone. If anyone, he says, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would come after me, these words then that Jesus is going to give us, they're not just for the preacher. They're not for that radical Christian. You know, that one who takes it just a step too far. They're not for the serious Christian and the casual Christian can kind of take it or leave it. That's not what Jesus said. They're not for the missionary only. Jesus says, if anyone is going to follow me, he does not lay out multiple paths. He does not give, oh, if you want to be super spiritual, then you need to go this path. You need to deny yourself. No, he says, if anyone, if anyone, if anyone is going to follow me. This is for absolutely everyone, from the richest to the poorest, the black, the white, everyone. The, the, the well-to-do, it just doesn't matter. The educated, the uneducated, it doesn't matter. The Jew, the Greek, the Gentile, if anyone. So Jesus says to you, if you are going to follow me, if you're going to set your mind on things of God, if you're going to do this, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to have to do this, that he's getting ready to say. But you can't exclude yourself and say, well, that's just for the serious Christian. I go to church on Sundays, and I'm there for 30 minutes, and I listen to the guy speak, and I listen to some great singing for another 30, 45 minutes, and I'm a Christian because of that. No. No, that's not what Jesus says. That's not what he's told us. He said, if anyone is going to follow me, anyone. If anyone is to be a follower of Christ, they must obey these words of Christ. Mark 8, 34 here is the definition of a Christian. Any Christian, all Christians. Some have said, what is a Christian? Mark 8, 34 is a Christian. Mark 8, 34 sets out the, the, the requirements to become a follower of Christ. <clears throat> and again, the idea that only some are called to such sacrificial service to God is, is not based on Scripture. I find it illuminating. I do. That Jesus didn't just call his closest disciples to him, did he? The, the word specifically told us Jesus called the crowd. 
All those bystanders. Everyone who might be near. He didn't just call Peter and John and James and, and Bartholomew and, and, and his chosen few and say to them, look, you guys, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to do this. No. Broadly, publicly, he calls everybody. He says, everybody listen. Everybody listen to what I had to say. And I would to God that he would help Christianity today and this nation and others and every preacher and every teacher of the word to say, look, this is for everybody. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, if anyone is going to follow him, you've got to do these things. Jesus didn't just call these chosen to himself. He called everyone, the crowd, and he says to them, if you're going to follow me, this is what you're going to have to do. If you're going to set your mind on godly things and not on things of man, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to follow me. You're going to have to do these things. And the first instruction that he says is to deny yourself. To, de to deny. To refuse in the Greek to give thought or express concern. To pay no attention. This is, this is a world of difference between our nation, our, our man's tendency. Setting your mind on the things of God means there's little to no room to set your mind on the things of yourself doesn't mean that you mistreat yourself. It means that you're setting your mind on God, not yourself. Always God. Always God first. Always. In everything, your work, your, your, your relationships, your money, your time, God first. To set your mind on the things of God is to put Him first and others second. And yes, yourself. Yourself a distant third, only because you need to take care of your mind. And Sarah's told me this so many times, and she's exactly right about it. You take care of yourself so that you can take care of others. You take care of yourself, and, and I wish I'd heed that advice better. I was even trying, you, you, you just take care of yourself so that you can take care of others. But you're third. You're putting your mind on God first and always. The instructions call on the follower of Christ here to, not just to deny himself. And that's where it begins. You won't do the rest of this until you do that first thing. Until you deny yourself. Not me, God, but you. Not my will, but yours. Not my hopes, but yours. Not my dreams, but your desire, your will. When you get there, you're still not really done. To set, in setting your mind on the things of God. Then, Jesus says, take up his cross. Take it up. You're going to have to lift it. You're going to have to carry it. I know that the cross of the Christian life can be heavy. I know that it can hurt. I know that it can feel as though it's digging into your shoulder and that the weight is more than you can bear. I know that's how it can feel. I know that God can sometimes call to you to do something, to go somewhere, to be something, to speak to someone, to give up something. I know that cross can be heavy. I know it can. But this is what the call of Christ is. And he's called the crowd and everybody around. And he said, if anyone's going to follow me, he's going to have to deny himself first. And the reason he's got to deny himself is because the cross that he's going to have to bear is going to be heavy. It's not going to be convenient. It's not going to be simple. It's going to be heavy and it's going to be burdensome. And he's, he knows that it's going to hurt. And the, the cross that he was heading to was the heaviest cross that any man or woman has ever had to bear or ever will. So he knew as well what he was asking. 
Now to take that cross up, what is God calling to you, saying to you, set your mind on my things, not on the things of man. Deny yourself, pick up the cross that I'm giving you to bear. What are you not picking up? The Christian's cross is so often, by the way, the reason others abandon him or her as you bear it. Because remember, we're not talking about a pretty thing. This is a scandalous story. The Christian's cross, often the reason others will abandon him or her, his cross weighs them down and prevents others, sometimes maybe even around them, from having their fun in the world. So take it up. So I encourage you, if you're going to set your mind on the things of God, pick up your cross. Pick it up. Pick up yours. Take up his cross. They don't all look the same. They don't all weigh the same. They don't all go to the same places. They don't all look alike. They don't all feel alike. Take up your cross, not someone else's. Yours. I wondered as I considered these thoughts, and we have this verse that Christianity is very quick to quote. And it's true, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Why is it, though, that we so, that Christianity in so many places or times, it focuses on a misunderstood version of that verse and seldom focuses on Mark eight thirty four? I know the plans I have for you, and it's, it's interpreted to say that God has this wonderful plan. He's going to make you happy, wealthy, and wise, and perhaps he will, but that's not the things of God. It's the things of man. To think that way about the passage. Jeremiah is true. The words that Jeremiah spoke there, and, or that God spoke and that Jeremiah recorded, are of course true. God does have plans for you. He does. Did you know that? God does have plans for you. But I want to tell you this. It so far exceeds plans for a temporary period of time in this life that you and I can even begin to begin to fathom it. To say that God's plans are limited to here and all about here is to miss the entire point. Those words are true. God does have a plan for you. Those plans, though, are for our welfare and our future and our hope eternally. Not just here. Now, as we, again, move, move along, the instructions call us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and follow him. Once you realize that this call is for all who would follow Christ, that you're not an exception, that you're not going to get in by proxy, you're not going to walk the streets of heaven because you knew someone who was really spiritual and connected with God, once you realize that this is for you, and you then say, I understand that. God is calling me to him. And the first call that he sends out, that gospel call, you're lost, you're a sinner, Christ died for you. The conviction that sets up in your heart in that moment as the Spirit of God makes the words real, as he did for me when I was 11 years old, I knew the words before I really felt them in my heart. I knew the story. I've been taught it well. 
But that day it changed. It became Jesus, the Spirit of God, as he spoke to me. And I understood and I recognized for the first time, I am lost. And I sought the Lord that day. And I didn't have all of these words to put to it. And you don't need them either. But you have the intent of the heart God looks upon and deny yourself and begin to follow him. To go to him first in repentance for sin. That's why he died. Ask him for forgiveness. To give you freedom and, and liberty from the bondage of sin. To allow you to come to him in repentance for sin. You can't look past repentance. We can't skip over it. It's absolutely essential and necessary to becoming a, a Christian. Repentance for sin. Faith in Christ as your Redeemer. And you seek Him until He gives you peace. Until you know for yourself, I am going to heaven. It is well with my soul. I have certainty and a confidence of that. Not because of me, but because of Him. Once you realize that call is for all, then follow Him. Once you've taken measures to deny yourself, once you've picked up your cross, it's now time to follow wherever, to whomever, at whatever time He calls. You've done a lot of difficult spiritual work and fought many spiritual battles just to pick up the cross, just to get to that point. But don't stop there. Follow Him. Set your mind on His things and follow Him. Go where He sends. Say what He wants you to say. Do what He wants you to do. And I'll close with this. How do you know that? How do you know what that is? That all sounds perfectly acceptable from behind a pulpit on a Sunday in a Christian church. But how do you know what it is? I'll just give you quick three quick things. Pray. Oh, we have forsaken prayer for the tool that it is. Communion with God. You in your closet alone. You with your church collectively. Go to God and tell him the sincere desire of your heart is to follow him. And ask him that if that's not as sincere as it needs to be, to reveal it to you, to show it to you, because you want to, and you want to deny yourself. Pray and ask God for that guidance and strength. Read your Bible, second. It's possible he's already answered your question. It's very possible. He's already told you what to do and what not to do. Read your Bible. Third, fellowship with other followers who are struggling to do the same thing you are. It's difficult to follow Christ in this world when there are others who are trying to do so uh, or are trying to keep you from doing so. It's that much more difficult to try to do that alone without others to support you and encourage you, to correct you even, to point out chinks in the armor because together we want to set our minds on the things of God and not the things of man do the obvious things don't get wrapped up in merely the big decisions of life trust and follow him in the small things and trust him to guide you in the big ones as well remember the goal is to follow Christ it's not to be impressive to the world follow me it's not to be impressive it's not to gather followers to yourself. It's to gather and to encourage other followers of Christ. Set your mind on the things of God. It's to forgo the companionship of the world for the companionship of Christ.
I want to read this to you as I am finished. A.W. Tozer, if you've not read this book, I would encourage you to. It's a wonderful book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God. He writes this about the man, and this, of course, applies to women and men altogether. But he writes this, The man who has passed on into the divine presence in actual inner experience will not find many who understand him. And if you're, if you, if you're like that, if you follow the Lord in this world, most are not going to understand you. They're not going to get it. That's just scripture and experience speaking. Tozer goes on, a certain amount of social fellowship will, of course, be his as he mingles with even religious persons in the regular activities of a church, but true spiritual fellowship will be hard to find. But he should not expect things to be otherwise. After all, he is a stranger and a pilgrim, and the journey he takes is not on his feet, but in his heart. He walks with God in the garden of his own soul, and who but God can walk there with him? He is of another spirit from the multitudes that tread the courts of the Lord's house. He's seen that of which they have only heard, and he walks among them somewhat as Zacharias walked after his return from the altar when the people whispered, he has seen a vision. The truly spiritual man is indeed something of an oddity. He lives not for himself, but to promote the interests of another. He seeks to persuade people to give all to his Lord and ask no portion or share for himself. He delights not to be honored, but to see his Savior glorified in the eyes of men. His joy is to see his Lord promoted and himself neglected. He finds few who care to talk about that which is the supreme object of his interest, so he is often silent and preoccupied in the midst of noisy religious shop talk. For this he earns the reputation of being dull and over-serious, so he is avoided, and the gulf between him and society widens. He searches for friends upon whose garments he can detect the smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, and finding few or none, he, like Mary of old, keeps these things in his heart. I love the writing of Tozer. That may be bordering on the border of extreme, but I think there's some truth there. Setting your mind on the things of God will place you in a very different way than the way that most are going to live their life. That's sad, but true. I encourage you to set your mind on the things of God. I pray we not only learn something here today about what it is to set our minds on the things of God, but that we actually would do so. God is dealing with you today. He's calling you. You found yourself in that crowd, but all of a sudden it's as though you are there with him alone. And he is calling out to you, follow me, come to me. If you've not yet been saved, I, I would ask you, I would encourage you, I'd exhort you to seek him and find him. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. If he's dealing with you today and you are already saved, but there's a calling and a place or a way of life that you desire to live that is higher spiritual ground than you've been walking that I encourage you and I exhort you to set your mind on the things of God. May we all set our minds on the things of God and not the things of man. And if we do so, may it all be to the glory of God and to his honor. Let's have a song.